He works for the government. He's digging around in some old filing cabinets, and he comes across an old, vaguely Arabic-looking lamp. And he rubs it, and what happens? A genie pops out. The genie says, I will give you three wishes. And the man says, okay, I would like an ice-cold lemonade. Poof, he's got an ice-cold lemonade in his hand. He says, wow, you really are a genie. This really does work. I want to visit a tropical island. Poof, he ends up in Fiji immediately. And he goes, man, this is so amazing. I never want to work again. Poof, he's back at his desk at the government office. That was the only genie joke I could find that was remotely appropriate. The idea of a genie or someone who grants wishes is a fun thought experiment because it asks the question, what do you really want? What would make you happy? What would fulfill your life? And we can think about that and dream about that. And, but in our story in Matthew's gospel this morning, Jesus says this to two blind men. He says, what do you want me to do for you? That's a big question. What would happen if Jesus asked you that question? What would you say? What would come to mind? I think we, we sometimes struggle with that question because we struggle with a couple things about our relationship with Jesus. And I want to take a look at this passage this morning and see how the blind men see their world, how they see themselves, and how they see Jesus, and, and what their views do to inform how they answer that question. If Jesus is going to ask us the question, what do you want me to do for you? Three other questions that I want to look at come to mind. And the first one is, do you trust that Jesus is good? Do you trust that Jesus is powerful? And what happens if he says yes? First of all, do you, do you trust that he's good? I think sometimes we don't trust that God is good. We, we wrestle with that because we don't really want to put our burdens on him. We don't really want to ask him for things because what if he doesn't really care? What if, what if he doesn't really value us at all? And I think sometimes we think that because, number one, we don't know the scriptures. Look at Matthew chapter 20. As the, he was leaving Jericho. He's, he's leaving this town, and there's this large crowd following him. He's heading, remember, to Jerusalem. He's on his last trip to Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested and crucified in the coming weeks. Jesus walks by these blind men, and what do they yell? They say, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. See, they're using explicit messianic titles for Jesus because they know the scriptures. We don't know why they're blind. We don't know how long they've been blind, but they grew up in an environment where they read the scriptures, and they knew who the Messiah King was. They knew he was the son of David. They call him Lord. Lord, son of David. They're not just making that title up. The one that is in their midst is the great king that they've read about their entire lives. 
LifeWay just came out with some research that said that 60% of us read our Bibles at least a few times a week. That's great, but that means that 40% of us don't. We are more and more becoming people that have greater and greater access to the Scriptures and interact with the Scriptures less and less. If we don't spend time in God's Word, we're not going to know God. We're not going to understand who God is. These blind men, they have an expectation of who Jesus is and what kind of a person he is and what his character is like because they have met him in their scriptures. If we don't, we, we won't trust God if we don't know him. My wife has been selling stuff on Facebook's Shop and Swap lately. How many of you have ever done that? A few of you. It's awful, Right? She's selling stuff for like $5 and somebody's like, oh man, I really want this, but I don't get paid for a few days. Can you hold it for three days for me? No, no, I cannot hold it for three days for you. Why? Because if I do, 15 other people that have the money right now, I'm going to have to say no to. And when you finally get paid, you're going to be like, ah, I changed my mind. I don't want it after all. (laughs) We don't trust people. I'm not going to hold it for you. You show up at my doorstep with cash in hand, and then I will give you this trinket that I'm trying to unload. But what if, what if a friend says, hey, I really want that, but I, I don't have the cash right now. Can you hold it for a few days? You're much more likely to say, yeah, I'll hold it for you. I trust you. I know you. I have a relationship with you. Because see, our trust is built on our understanding and our relationship that we have with people. And if you do not study the scriptures, you will not get to know the God of the scriptures and you will not trust him. We need to be people that know our Bibles. And the second thing that I find interesting about these blind men is, look at what happens. They they shout, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And what is the response? The crowd demanded, verse 31, that they keep quiet, but they cried out all the more. Sometimes I think we don't trust that God is good because we listen to other voices. The crowd wants to shut these men down. The king doesn't have time for you. He doesn't need to deal with all of your baggage. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's, he's, see all these people? He's busy. Leave him alone. Why would the crowd want them to be quiet? Maybe they think it's disrespectful to shout at the king like this. Maybe they just find the blind men annoying. Maybe it makes them feel uncomfortable. Have you ever been in a prayer meeting where it suddenly gets very real? Like you're going to go around from chair to chair and it's like, yeah, help my foot, it hurts. And uh, work is hard right now, help pray for that. And then somebody's all like, guys, I just, I, I don't feel like I can do it anymore. My marriage is falling apart and, my, and I'm going to get fired from my job. And, and I, I, just, I just don't know if God's even there. And everybody in the room just kind of backs a step away. Like, oh, I wasn't really prepared for this kind of real life right now. See, the church should be a place where we are prepared for that, where we are ready to authentically engage with one another in our real need. But so often we're just so surfacey. We have to appear that everything's okay, that everything's fine. Don't worry about it. Everything's great. But it's usually not that great. 
And these blind men, they are brave enough to say, it's not that great. Son of David, have mercy on us. And the crowd's like, I don't, just, shh. You ever feel that way? Jesus doesn't have time for you. Jesus is too busy for you. Jesus doesn't care about your problems. Maybe the crowd is in your head. Maybe the voice of the crowd is in your head. Verse 32 says that Jesus stopped. He called them and he said, what do you want me to do for you? See, Jesus is thronged by people everywhere and he is on a mission to Jerusalem. But he stops for two individuals in need and he has compassion on them. Verse 34 says, he loves them. He reaches out to them. Friends, Jesus is not too busy for you. Jesus is not judging you for your failures. It might just be that Jesus is waiting for you to ask. But sometimes we're okay with Jesus caring about us. We're, we think that's, that's probably pretty true, but, but is Jesus really able to do what we need him to do? Is he powerful? Do we trust that he's powerful? It's possible that he really loves us and he really cares about us, but he can't really do anything about it. But see, the blind men, they don't think that way. These, these men, like, like I said, they, we don't know how long they've been blind, but they're both blind now, and, and there's, no, there's no Americans with Disabilities Act. There's no Braille. There's no, there's no workforce training. There's nothing in their society that will help them do anything other than sit on the street and beg. This is the only way that they can earn a living. We don't know. They might have families at home. And they come out to this corner every day in order to earn just a little bit of money so that they can support themselves and others. And a huge opportunity is walking by today. A king. A king and his entourage is the great Messiah. Kings have money. They could have asked for money. The normal thing would be to ask for money. The great king, maybe he's a generous king. Maybe he will give us a month's worth of income so that we don't have to beg quite so much. That would have been totally normal. And I wonder sometimes if we try to be normal, we suffice ourselves by asking God for just things that will make the status quo a little bit smoother. We don't, we don't really believe that he can transform our lives. We don't really believe that he can heal our marriages or fix our souls or free us from the sin that snared us. But God, if you could just, you know, make things a little bit easier, that'd be great. We say these prayers all the time. We don't even think about them. My favorite one is, and we say it every day at my house, Lord, bless this food to our bodies. What does that even mean? I don't know. We say it, does it matter? Does God, is God like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Eat better food and you'd be, better, you'd be more blessed. You know, like, we don't cry out to God with our real needs. We kind of like sprinkle these silly prayers out there because we just kind of want things to go okay. God probably can't actually fix what's going on deep inside of our souls. 
See, Jesus is going to completely change these men's lives. He's going to completely transform their very existence. And they could have just asked for money. We're also not sure about Jesus' power because we're afraid of drawing attention to our real need. Right? The, the blind men, they have, to, they have to say, God, we want to be able to see. We can't see. We want to see. They have to acknowledge that in front of this crowd. And, you know, maybe it seems obvious, but still we don't like to acknowledge it. I was at Home Depot the other day. I was loading eight sheets of uh, five-eighths inch thick OSB, four, sheet, four foot by eight foot, into my Honda Element, <laughs> which if you, if you know that that doesn't fit. Um, the Honda Element is not four feet wide, so it has to go in diagonally. And, and I've, got, I've got them on the rack, and I can, I'm just barely getting these up and sliding them in. And then this guy, God bless him, he was so smooth. He comes up and he goes, hey, man. Would another set of hands help or you got a system? And what did I say? Oh, no, I got it. I, don't worry about it. I got it. I didn't have it. The wind started blowing and I had a piece of sheet above me and I was like doing this and it's like, but I, could, I couldn't admit my weakness to this other man at the hardware store. I wasn't willing to do that. Everyone could see my weakness, but I wasn't going to tell people my weakness. I've been to that prayer meeting too. You go, you go around, hey, how can we pray for you? What do you need? And there's always somebody who's like, nope, I'm good. I don't need anything. Everything's fine. Maybe, maybe everything's fine. Maybe it's the best day of your life. But chances are we're afraid to admit what's going on in our hearts. We're afraid to admit that we're struggling with sin. We're afraid to admit that our relationships are in conflict. We're afraid to admit that we're afraid of the future. And for some reason, we think silence is strength. Like, if I don't tell you what's going on with me, I appear strong. But why is it so hard then to admit your weakness, your failure to other people. That's what strength is. Strength is saying, hey, hey guys, I'm broken. I need prayer. I need help. I need the community of God's people to lift me up right now. The church is a place for broken people. Like that's why we're all here. If any of us are attending and, and participating in church community because it's like the you know, noble thing to do. Good citizens attend church. Like, we've missed the point. We draw near to the community of God's people because we want to draw near to God because we're weak and broken and hurting and we need help. Do we believe that he has the power to answer our prayers? And then the third thing I, I, I think we struggle with with regards to this question is, what if God doesn't answer? What if, we, what if we cry out to the Lord and he doesn't answer? You know what I think? I, I think if, if I say, you know, I'm, I'm praying for this big thing and then I tell people about it and it doesn't happen, 
man, God's going to look bad. God will look really foolish if he doesn't answer my prayer. And I feel bad for God. And that sounds stupid when you say it, but that's how I feel. Charles Spurgeon says, the gospel is a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It just needs to be let out of its cage. So God doesn't need me to defend him. God doesn't need me to make excuses for him. God needs me to trust him, to believe that he can do whatever he wants. But still, I think sometimes we doubt, we lack assurance that God can answer our prayers. And the The terrible thing about that is that the more we doubt, the more we lack, the worse it gets. Tim Keller writes, we can find that we lack God's assurance, lack assurance of God's presence with us and power for us because we never take a risk and do something bold in obedience to him. We never step out in faith and find him there. How many of you seen the movie Onward? Kids, Onward, yeah? Just the adults, it's fine. There's a character named Ian and he's, um, he has to cross this chasm and there's no bridge and he has a magical staff and he has a spell that he says and apparently he's gonna be able to walk across this chasm and he, he takes a step out and he lands and he's, and he's safe. And then he takes another step out and he falls, but his, his brother catches him with the rope around his waist and his brother says, you have to believe in every step. And so he slowly walks across the nothingness, believing that every step is gonna support his weight. And just a little bit of time, he's on the other side. He has crossed the giant chasm and he can look back and see that he's come this far but he would not have come that far if he didn't have faith in every single moment of that journey. And that's what, that's what Keller is saying, that when we, when we approach the small act of faith, the small step that we need to give over to God and we go, I don't know, God, I don't think you can do it. The next time we have the opportunity, it's gonna be a little bit harder and it's gonna be a little bit harder. Faith is a, muscle that we exercise. We have, to, we have to do it in order to grow in it. And when we, when we take that step and see that God is faithful, that gives us boldness to take the next step and see that God was faithful. And pretty soon we're on the other side of the chasm. These blind men took a big step of faith. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus says, Lord, open our eyes. And I wonder, will we be courageous enough to step out and ask God to radically transform our lives? To radically invade the areas of our hearts that are broken, that we can't get figured out? To radically interrupt the problematic relationships in our lives and sort them out through the power of his love to meet our needs in areas that we think there's no way that these 
ends are going to meet. Because it takes some boldness to believe that Jesus has the power to really do those things. So what if you believe that God is good? What if you trust that Jesus is good and he cares about you? What if you trust that Jesus is powerful and can do anything that you ask? Well, what if he says yes? What if he gives you what you ask for? Look at verse 34. Matthew writes, moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes. Immediately they could see and they followed him. The very first thing these men do with the great gift they've been given is they put it to use following Jesus to Jerusalem. They could have they thanked him, stayed in Jericho, got some decent jobs, made something of themselves, given generously to the poor, been good Jewish men. Remember that time, Bartimaeus, when Jesus came through and he gave us our sight back? Wasn't that great? But they don't do that. They immediately recognize that this gift has responsibility attached to it. I have been given a brand new life and I have to follow my king. I want to read for you Ephesians chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. Paul writes... And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God... But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespass. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. See, God has a plan. God has a purpose in inviting you into his kingdom, in rescuing you from your sin, in transforming your heart and your life. He has things that he wants you to get done. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a scene about halfway through where the endless winter begins to melt and the white witch's curse is being lifted and Father Christmas shows up and he pulls out of his bag all of these gifts. Lucy gets this uh, vial of healing potion. Susan gets a bow and a horn. Peter gets a sword and a shield. 
And the reason they get this gift, these gifts is not just so they can like mount them on their wall at home. There's a battle coming and they're going to use all of these things in the battle. God gives us gifts and he gives us gifts generously. And then he says, take the things that I have given you and come with me. Be about my business. And this is exactly what these men do. Jesus opens their eyes and they follow him. They take the thing that they couldn't do. They couldn't see. They couldn't move. They had to be led around. And now they can see. Now they can go anywhere. Now, they can, now they're free. And they follow Jesus. And Jesus is on the way to the cross. We've talked about this a lot. The power of the Christian life is seen in Jesus on his journey to the cross. Jesus will be given over to the authorities. He will be arrested. He will be unjustly tried and tortured and he will be crucified, killed as a criminal would. Not because he's done anything wrong, but because he is laying his life down for us. He is taking the penalty of our sin, our brokenness, all of the ways that we go astray and he is taking that punishment and wrong on himself so that we can be free. And these men, whether they really know it or not, are saying, Jesus, we want to go with you. We want to follow you. So this morning, I want us to be people that are encouraged to ask Jesus for big things and believe that Jesus can do them. But also recognize that when Jesus answers your prayer, when, when the big crazy thing that you didn't think could get figured out comes to pass, when he pours out his power on your situation, he's inviting you to walk with him to the cross. He's inviting you to take that freedom and that gift and that joy and that peace that he's given you and lay your life down in service for others. Whenever, whenever I think about things like this, whenever I think about asking God for things, and I, I know many of us struggle with this, there's all these exceptions that come to mind. Maybe some of you are thinking about them now. Well, sometimes God says no. Sometimes God says wait. Sometimes, like James writes, you ask with wrong motives so you can spend on your own pleasures and that's why you don't get what you want. Sometimes you're living a life of disobedience and God is not hearing your prayers. That's what he tells husbands in 1 Peter, that if your relationship with your wife is not correct, God's not going to listen to your prayers. That's frightening. Maybe, maybe you're supposed to have a hindrance like Paul, a thorn in the flesh that God's just going to say, you're going to live with that and it's going to keep you humble. And those are all possibilities. Those are all things that we can look at in scripture and go, yeah, that, that could be the case. But I find more often than not, I use those possibilities to just not ask God for stuff. To just not step out, to not be bold, to not say, God, this is what I need and I need a big scary thing to happen and I don't know how it's gonna happen unless you supernaturally do it and I trust you to do it. But I just don't do that because, well, maybe it's a thorn in the flesh or maybe, maybe, it's a, maybe I have selfish motives. I probably do. 
We all probably always have selfish motives. You ever think about that? Like, have your motives ever been completely pure for anything? The blind men asked Jesus for something crazy, and he answered their prayer. I'm afraid that we don't ask because we don't believe that he cares, or we don't believe that he can do it, or maybe we're afraid of what will happen if he says yes. As we close, I want to read something that Jesus said earlier in the gospel of Matthew in chapter seven. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is a promise that Jesus gives to us. And instead of being people that rationalize that away by all the other things that could be true, let us be people that lean into that and say, Jesus, here are the big things that I need you to do in my life because I can't do them. I need you to do them for me and be prepared for him to answer. And maybe... Maybe he'll say, wait, maybe he'll say no. Maybe he'll say, repent of some sin so we can get some things going. But let's not be people that just silence the work of God in our lives because we're afraid that maybe he isn't willing or able to do it. We're going to take communion like we always do every week. We're going to remember the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. The fact that he came the eternal God as a man. He lowered himself. He humbled himself. He lived as a Galilean peasant. The blind men didn't know that their king was homeless, walking to Jerusalem to find violence and death. But we remember that Jesus gave up his life for us. And that, maybe that's something new for you today. Maybe, maybe you, you would say like, I'm not a Christian. I don't, I don't follow Jesus. I, am, I, I know all about this church stuff or maybe I'm vaguely familiar, but, but I've never asked Jesus to transform my life. I've never asked him to take control, to fix the big things that are in the way. The big thing that's ultimately in the way is the sin that lives in us, the brokenness that lives in us, all the ways that we get it wrong all the time. And no matter where you are, if, you, if you're not a Christian this morning, if you are a Christian this morning, there are things that I believe are coming to your mind that are big and scary and you're like, I don't know, Jesus, can you even handle this request? And I would challenge you to ask him to put that in front of him. Not, don't order him around. He doesn't have to do our bidding. He's our Lord. He's our King. He's in charge. But as you take communion, as you remember the first thing he did for you, he bought you with his blood. 
Remember that he's promised everything else to us. Life and life more abundantly, he says in John. And take some time and bring those things before him that are coming to your mind that you're a little bit afraid to pray for. And trust him. And see if maybe he, he is just waiting for you to ask. Is Jesus this morning saying, what do you want me to do for you? And he's just listening and he's ready to answer. As the band comes back up, we'll, we'll sing. We'll take communion together. There's, there's room up front on the prayer rugs, if you want to move, if you feel like changing the posture of your body helps you engage with the Lord, that's totally fine. That's what this is here for. But take some time as we remember the death and the resurrection of Christ to put those things before him and say, God, this is what I need. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.